0: So we'll pretty much uh, hang out there in Numbers 21, if you want to turn there. We'll uh, stay there for the next few minutes, so we think about the story. You read this story before? Heard it before? Some of you have. Maybe some of you haven't. It's kind of a scary story, isn't it, in some ways? It is a uh, story that is, I don't know, It. I guess this gives ammunition to some folks who describe the God of the Old Testament as a God of vengeance and judgment, who's who seems to be I don't know, I guess you could read this story if you isolated it from his context and from the rest of the Bible. You could certainly read this to paint God in a certain way, a negative way, right? He's a God who responds like capriciously. He, I mean, you got people complaining. So what? Everybody complains. Do we deserve the fiery serpents, right? So you could certainly read it that way, but I I think this is like so many many things in, in the Bible you've got to you got to go beneath the surface and, and, and read them in their context and read them over against this overarching beautiful story of God's redemption and what God ultimately does through Jesus. And I think it helps us to read a story like this in a, in a healthier way. So let's look at the story. Numbers 21, 4 through 9. Let me set the stage for you as far as the context so we know where we are. Um, this is... If you're following along with the Bible reading that the church is doing this year, the Bible recap reading plan, you're in the early chapters of the book of Numbers. And where this story falls is God has redeemed his people from slavery in Egypt, right? Israel came out of Egypt, crossed the Red Sea, entered into the wilderness, got the Ten Commandments, got the Law of Moses, built the tabernacle, all that, the book of Exodus. God gave the law. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. God expounded on a lot of the Levitical laws. This is the way you go about keeping all these holidays, the Day of Atonement, all that. Come to the book of Numbers. And they've been journeying. Remember God had had made this plan for them that they would leave Egypt, they would get the law, they would go to the land of Canaan, and they would inhabit the land, right? They get to the land of Canaan, they send send the twelve. You're not here yet if you're following on their Bible reading because this is like Numbers 13 or so. They get to the land of Canaan, send 12 spies in, scouts in, they scout, scout out the land. They come out, and 10 of them say, we can't do it. It's, um, cities are too big, soldiers are too strong, we are too weak. We can't take this land, you know. Two of them say, yeah, we can do it, but, but the people believe the 10. And they say, you know, we're sick of this. Moses, you're done. We're done with you. We're going to appoint us another leader who's going to take us back to Egypt. And we had it so good back there, and, and we'll, we'll relive our glory days. Back in Egypt, you know, well, God steps in and he says to the people, you're going to get what you want. You're going to get your wish. You're not going to go into the land. You're going to spend it here in the wilderness for the next four decades or so. That's the background. And so we're in that time. Okay, we're we're in this time of characterized by rebellion, a lack of faith. They they have seen God part the Red Sea. They have seen the plagues in Egypt. They have they have been provided for for a time now with manna, with quail. They God has blessed them, He's protected them, He's guided them. And, the, and they get to this point, Numbers 21 and verse 4. They they're close to the Red Sea, they go around the land of Egypt. The land of Edom, rather, and the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. That's an interesting statement, isn't it? We have no food and we hate this food. In other words, we've got food, we just don't like the food. Uh, And so we, we don't have any food that we want. No water, yet God had provided water for them. We load this worthless food. God sent these fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. Okay, let's think about what's going on here. Why does God act like this? You ever wondered this? Why does God do this? It seems pretty drastic. Is there anybody in this room? I appreciate Wes's prayer a minute ago. Is there anybody in this room? Because he, re- he reflected this, this tendency among us all. Is there anybody in this room who doesn't at times complain? We see it in children. Unfortunately, we, we don't grow out of it when we reach adolescence or adulthood or whatever, right? Uh, complaining. Is there anybody who hasn't already complained, at least in your mind, today? Some of, some of you maybe, you've gotten to this, this, uh, this 1030 hour and you have not complained yet in your mind or out loud. Perhaps that's true, but I doubt many of us make it too long. And so I think, I think we read this story and we're tempted to think, man, this is really harsh. One of the things I think we've got to do here is to recognize that God is addressing not simply the complaining, but he's addressing the underlying issue. There's an underlying disease here that God is paying attention to. Let's, let's think about that for a minute. I think Friday night, Mountain and I watched this movie that the setting of it was Auschwitz, southern Poland, one of the death camps, one of the worst death camps of World War II. And in that movie, as any movie about Auschwitz would do, it shows some of the horrors associated with the concentration camps of the late 1930s and early 1940s in Poland and Germany. I don't know if you knew this, but the hundred years or so, century or so prior to 1945, there was a pretty incredible sense of optimism in the world about what human beings might be able to accomplish and, and, but, and, but, but more than that, there was this incredible optimism about human beings themselves, you know humanism, this this belief about us that we are inherently and basically good and and this this optimism through the 1800s and into the into the 20th century into the 1900s it it, it permeated the western world you know that human beings are basically good and we can do anything because we're good we just need we just need to you know divert the funds in the right way we we can we can work on our education we can work on our political systems and so on And nothing will be able to stop us because of our goodness, essential goodness. 1945 killed that, pretty much. Killed it. I'm not saying there aren't optimistic people out there. It's just that that sense of optimism pretty much died in the mid-20th century when those first images started coming out of southern Poland and Germany in 1945 when those death camps were liberated. And people started to see, at least a lot of people in the world, started to see for the first time... This is what people can do to other people. Incredible. You've seen the images, haven't you? Have you had the... Melanie and I talked about this Friday night. (coughs) Have you had these, these conversations or these thoughts? How in the world could that ever happen? And I think one of the things that what it did to the Western world is that in the Western world, in in, in the United States, in Europe, is that Germany, at that point, going into the the 1930s, was a... I mean, you look at the history of Germany, you know, with an advancement scientifically, um, theologically. Man, some of the best Christian scholars in the history of the church have come out of Germany. Arts, music... Somehow they could do that. I think there was a sense of this kind of an eye-opening. I cannot believe it. And I think probably when you when you start thinking about it, there's a tendency maybe to think, for a lot of us probably, man, that I could never do anything like that, or, or my people could never do. Americans would never do anything like that probably ignoring a little bit of our own history, you know? And I think when we, when we, when we start being a little bit more honest, we come to grips, we come face to face with a very disturbing reality. And that is that they were no different than us, than we are. And our slave-holding ancestors... Are no different than we are. See, there's, there's something about the brokenness of humanity that allows us to engage in unthinkable activities. Do you, do you see what I'm saying? I'm, 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 I think it's important for us to see. Beneath the surface of an event like this, when it seems, oh, this is just complaining, this is just, I don't know, people having a weak moment or whatever. Truth is, it betrayed the the darkness and the depravity of the human heart after they had been with God for years and they had seen His, his amazing and incredible provision and miraculous outpouring of his grace toward them. And they get to this point, and after having seen all this, they say, we hate this food you've given us. We want to go back to Egypt. You brought us out here to kill us. It says in verse 5 that the people spoke against God and against Moses. Against God and against Moses. Against God. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no food, no water. We hate this food. And God responds drastically. and With great judgment. I I just think we ought to stop here and pause a little bit before we start kind of pointing fingers at God and saying, how could you respond so drastically to this? And the truth is, God is addressing something more than quote-unquote innocent complaining. (coughs) He's addressing a condition of the human heart that we've all got to come face-to-face with. And that is the natural bent of the heart since the fall, is to doubt the goodness of God, which is exactly what you've got here. This is Genesis three, all over again. We talk about that a lot here because I think it's important, and I want you to, I want you to, I want you to see this because what happened was, remember what Satan did, what the serpent did, and maybe there's, maybe it's not just coincidence that you've got a serpent in the Garden of Eden, and you've got serpents here in Numbers twenty one. and... You've got a serpent of brass, you know, that's put up on this pole. You've got all this serpent imagery. And, and, and maybe, maybe we're meant to reflect on that serpent of Genesis 3 when he said to them, essentially, <coughs> when he said to Adam and Eve, he said, is God really good? Is he really good? Because if he was good, this is the subtle implication of what the serpent did in the garden. If God was really good then he would not have put a fence around that tree. This is the way we all fall. And when we complain, and when we doubt, and, and when we, I don't know, maybe, maybe none of us are so bold as to point our fingers at God and accuse Him directly. But in an indirect way, what we do so often in our own struggle, is we say or we think, I don't know, God, if you're really doing what's best for me, because I don't really like the way this thing is going. I don't know if you're doing it right. That's what they were doing. See, so instead of kind of passing over or glossing over this, or or, or kind of um, I don't know, underemphasizing the severity of this complaint, maybe we ought to come face to face with the fact. Remember, we're going we're to go toward hope, all right? But we've got to see the ugliness of what we see here. And we've got to, to a certain extent, we've got to look in the mirror here a little bit because it's so easy for us to think, all oh, those awful Israelites are so ungrateful and all that. and they're, Man, you know, they're terrible. If I'd been there, you know what? If you and I had been there, I hate to, I hate to say this, but I, I think probably had we been there, we would have been right there with them, you know? Because it's human nature. So God responds. He addresses not the symptom, but the underlying issue, the underlying disease. And the character of that disease is that it doubts the goodness of God, which is at the root of all sin. It is saying, God, you're not doing this right. If I were in charge, I would be doing it differently. I wouldn't put that fence around the forbidden tree, I wouldn't provide us this bread. I wouldn't do it that way. I would do it better than you, God, if I were in charge. That's kind of hard to say, isn't it? And yet that's exactly what they were saying. Look, look what God does here. <clears throat> so God responds to them, and he, and he sends these fiery, this, uh, or he, t- he tells Moses to put this fiery serpent on a, on a pole. But look at verse 7. If you've got your Bible open still. People came to Moses and, and they said, we have, we have sinned. Then we need to give credit here to their response because I, I think that this is a little bit different from the way that they often responded. They said, we have sinned for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. We have, we have, we have sinned. The importance of repentance here. You know, something interesting, which I've, I don't know uh, I don't know if I'd ever noticed this before, but this text here, when it says the fiery serpents, you know what the word for fiery is? It's the word seraphim in the Hebrew. Does that sound familiar? It's the plural in Hebrew of the word seraph, which is a word that literally means a flaming one, often used, as you may know, of angels or these angelic beings who would... We're in the presence of God and, uh, and so it's when it says he sent fiery serpents among them, it, it means, you know, flaming or fiery serpents, these seraphim snakes. And probably, you know, people talk about what, what exactly were these snakes, there are all kinds of snakes that could have been represented here in this part of the world. You have a puff adder and you've got scholars thinking about different kinds of snakes. There's one actually that was referred to sometimes as this this kind of snake in in this part of the world was referred to as seraphim. Interestingly enough, which it was called that because of the great burning sensation that your body would kind of permeate your body when you were bitten by one of them. But having said that, God did this because he he wanted to get them to respond in a certain way. Now, maybe there's something here for you and me. Because I think a lot of times you and I probably want the easy path. We want God to take away the obstacle. We want want the easiest road, right? There's something natural about wanting that. Have you ever prayed a prayer that's a little bit different from that? Have you ever prayed a prayer asking God to do whatever it takes in your life to get you to see how serious sin is and to bring you to this place of repentance. Have you ever ever prayed a prayer like that? Because sometimes the answer to that prayer is not gonna be, I think often the answer to that prayer is not gonna be the easiest path forward. If you pray that prayer, you're asking God to do whatever He needs to do in order to help you to have eyes that are open to see what's going on in your heart and in your life in order to wake you up. Because there's something more important than an easy life. And that more important thing is for you to see the nature of sin as it really is and see the path forward, which is toward hope. So God does something drastic here. And I guess maybe there's a tendency among some of us, especially if we have kind of a skeptical bent toward Scripture or toward God, there's a tendency for us to point a finger of accusation toward God and say, how can you be so harsh? And maybe our response to this, instead of that, it ought to be something like, Lord, please do what you need to do in me in order to help me to see whatever it is you need me to see. And if it brings about some short term struggle, (laughs) then bring it about so that I can get to the other side of this. I I don't know. I don't know. I, I think there's something going on here. And there's this—I uh, don't know—this uh, kind of skeptical tendency in some folks today. Maybe it's—I um, don't know—it's a, a superficial way, I think, of of viewing reality that that says that the easiest path is always the best path, you know. But regardless, God brings about repentance here. Was it worth it? Was the experience of being bitten by fiery serpents worth bringing them to a state of repentance? Is there any earthly condition, however bad it might be, that leads you to repentance? Is that earthly difficulty something that you would rather not happen to you if in the doing of it, it brings about the, net, the desired spiritual result? You see what I'm saying here? It's what God does in them. He brings about repentance. And then he provides for them. <clears throat> Look at this again. We're going to get to uh, to Jesus here in just a minute, uh, but I want you to see. (coughs) Excuse me, verse eight. And the Lord said to Moses, "Make a fiery serpent, make a seraphim snake, seraphim serpent, and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live." It is interesting that God chooses the very object that was bringing about pain and suffering and death in their lives. And he chooses to make an image of that thing, put it on a pole, and that became the source of deliverance for them. Isn't that interesting? So these things were wreaking havoc. They were bringing about terror and uh, all this pain and suffering and death in their lives. And now the way that they're to be rescued from that is to look on, to look on, to see, to put faith in the very object that represented that which was killing them. <clears throat> God's provision here. I want to read you a passage you may have already connected this perhaps but Jesus this is one of the stories in uh, the Old Testament that Jesus specifically refers to you know everybody knows John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his own the begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life beautiful passage two verses prior to that are not as familiar John 3 14 and 15 listen to this this is Jesus the words of Jesus He says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world. That's next. But John 3, 14 and 15, we don't read as much. See, I think there's there's a kind of a, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him. I mean, there's there's kind of, in John 3.16, that's the one people put on a big poster board and hold it up at football games and and all that. I mean, it gets all the attention. And it's a beautiful verse. You know, it's it's the gospel distilled in John 3.16. But I think what a lot of people don't want to see, or maybe don't, don't connect here, is that what precedes that is Jesus helping us to see that what happened, what needed to happen, what had to happen, in order for John 3.16 to be true, is that Jesus had to become, as it were, the very thing that was bringing about our death. And so so he says this. He says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, (coughs) so must the Son of Man be lifted up. What is that? It's not talking about the exaltation here. It's not talking about when Jesus ascended to the right hand of God after the after the resurrection. I'm talking about that. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. This is when, this is why the serpent was lifted up on a pole, right? On a pole. Jesus himself was lifted up from the earth on a pole, on a cross. And so he says, in order for John 3.16 to be true, in order for there to be salvation for anybody who seeks Jesus, who who, who finds Christ, in order for that to be true, it had to take place through the lifting up of Jesus from the earth and for him to be displayed publicly as a sinner. Now, I didn't say, Scripture doesn't say Jesus became a sinner. But what it does say, let me read the text. I, I refer to this a lot when around here. This, this passage a lot around here. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21. Uh, I, 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 I think it's a beautiful passage. It shows us the essence of the cross. Listen to this. For our sake, he made him to be sin. He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You hear that? When these people were dying of this self-inflicted situation, having complained they are punished by God in order to be rescued, in order to be delivered from the consequences, the wages of sin, to be rescued from death, they had to, God, the way of provision was, that thing that was destroying them was put on a pole. And they looked at it and were given deliverance. Now, <clears throat> obviously, I hope you, I hope it's obvious to you, Jesus was never responsible, has never been responsible for what you and I do. He never sinned. And yet, when he was hung on the cross, when he was when he was lifted up from the earth on the pole. He was becoming that which was killing us. He became sin for us. He became the serpent for them. He became the serpent, as it were, for us so that you and I might be rescued. Do you see what's going on here on the cross? It's the same thing. This is why Jesus refers to it in, uh, in, in John 3. He wants us to see that He was willing to become... That which was our greatest enemy so that he could show victory over that, be resurrected the third day, and offer salvation to us all. That's the beauty of the cross. He had no sin, and yet he became sin. You know this, I know, but crucifixion was reserved in the first century world for the worst of the worst. No Roman citizen would be crucified unless he committed treason. It was reserved for non-Romans. It was for the worst of the worst. It was for sinners. It was for murderers. It was for those who had done the awful thing. That is why God chose for this particular way of execution to be that by which Jesus would experience death. Because He needed to become the serpent. He needed to become he had to become sin in order to proclaim victory over sin. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And in so doing, and Moses says this to the people, he says, everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. This is Numbers 21, verse 8. When he sees it, your, your translation might say, when he looks upon it, shall live. But regardless... The underlying verb here is one that means more than a passing glance. It doesn't just mean <clears throat> it doesn't just mean you look, but rather it carries with it something deeper than that. It is a, a looking on the the object and trusting in it, of believing in it. It carries with it this connotation of not just not just seeing it, but actually beholding it. When You've been bitten, and you see it, really see it, you'll live. And that's what Jesus wants you to do today, because we're in the same boat, right? It's easy to look at the death camps of 1942. It's easy to look at the Israelites of thousands of years ago and see how bad their sins were. But the truth is, and I think deep down we know it, is we're all the same. We all have traded something good away for the temporary relief. We have, we've done what they did, and that is we have questioned the goodness of God. We've said, Lord, I, you know, I know you're God, and, and, but I want to do it this way. That's what it means to pursue your own path. And the way to be rescued, the way to be redeemed from the consequences of that choice is to behold, to look upon the cross of Jesus and say, I don't have anything to offer, but I fall down at the cross today and I say to Jesus Christ, please save me. You demonstrate that in baptism. When you say, I'm dead, I I don't have anything to offer, I'm, I'm dead to self, we baptize you. You're you're raised up to walk a new life, having your sins washed away by the blood of Jesus. He became sin for you so that you might become the righteousness of God in him. If you need to become a Christian today, we are here today in part to give you that opportunity. Why don't you come forward in just a moment and give your, your heart and life to Jesus and look upon him. Look upon him. Trust in him. He is the only hope we've got. If you're ready to make that confession today and be baptized, we're here for you. If you need to ask for prayers, we'll pray for you. Let's stand. Let's sing this song.